World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the Americhicks with your host, Kim Munson. Hey, welcome to the World War II Project with Kim Munson. And I am thrilled to have in studio with me Steve Castles. He is working with History Flight. And it's going to be a really great conversation. Be sure and go to my website, americhicks.com, and uh, check out uh, everything that we have there, as well as sign up for my emails. We'll keep you apprised of all the upcoming guests. And um, that is americhicks.com. So, Steve Castles, it is so exciting to have you in studio here. Well, thanks, Kim. It's nice to be here. We have a mutual friend, Grady Birdsong, and uh, he's kind of the head person with Cooper's Troopers, which is a group of Marines all different ages, that meets up in North Denver once a month for for a lunch. And uh, so Grady's the one that con- connected us. Yeah, Grady was a good friend of mine going all the way back to college. He and I uh, took my old Woody and drove out to California in the 60s to go surfing. And uh, uh, that's a great picture of <laughs> both of us were much younger in those days. <laughs> And uh, and then he and I was in a rock and roll band, and he, he we used to travel with us on the road to some of our dances and stuff and so we go way back you go way back yeah. that's for sure now you both were in uh, in the service in the military right so yeah. did you go in together or? no grady went in the marines uh, i he came in he went in much earlier than i did i was teaching high school and went to graduate school and then eventually uh, joined the army in 1972 okay um and then um, by that time, they weren't sending anybody to Vietnam anymore. I wound up serving as a medical service corps uh, lieutenant out at Fitzsimmons Hospital here in Denver for a couple of years. Okay. Yeah. And how long were you in? Just two years. Two years? Okay. Okay. Grady was the one who had to dodge all the bullets. I didn't have to do yeah. any of that. Yeah. I need to get his story. You know, <laughs> it's a good get, one. I need to get his Way. story for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about you are doing something really exciting now. History Flight uh, I'm familiar with it. Mark Noah with History Flight is doing something rather remarkable. So would you tell our listeners, Steve Castles, what that is exactly? History Flight is is a pretty unique non-governmental organization, a non-profit that Mark started, from what I've read, uh, quite by accident, having uh, been as a pilot and interested in World War II plane crashes, had gone down to Tarawa, which is right on the equator north of Fiji, to look for a crashed plane that they knew about. And while down there, found out about this bloody battle in November of 1943, in which 1,100 Marines were killed within a 72-hour period and uh, buried rather quickly in the sand because of the horrible weather conditions mm-hmm. the bodies were deteriorating very quickly and, and they were getting ready to move on to the next island anyway so they buried all of them in there and then came back after the war to recover them and they only found about 500 because the cemeteries had been moved and obliterated and the records were poor and uh, and he uh, got involved in finding the first marine or two after that and uh, and then it became his passion, and it's been ever since. I'm not sure how many years that's been, maybe 10. I'm not sure. Uh, and he started his, – his history flight doesn't sound like a uh, MIA recovery organization, um, but it was originally 
where he gave people flights in World War II airplanes and mm-hmm. would go to air shows and things. And, but but then it changed, and he uh, he now is fully invested in recovering MIAs. Kind of on off note, just recently I got to take a ride up at the Loveland Airport in a B-25. The sentimental journey. Yeah. <laughs> I went up and saw it. <laughs> yeah, and it was uh, – it was pretty eye-opening for me as, as we were preparing for the show. You said, you know, how did I become interested in World War II? And I always was interested. However, it wasn't until 2016 when I went with a group from the Denver Police Activities League that took four D-Day veterans. And I tell you, Steve, standing on the beaches there and hearing these guys talk, two of them were first-wave Omaha landing craft operators. Wow. And they said, do you remember the, f- the first day the water was red? It wasn't until the third day that the water was pink. And that truly changed my life. But I h- had no idea how small these, these <laughs> planes were. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking that they're like airliners, like, you know, we, we fly around. These, these planes that, that won World War II, they were really made for young, nimble guys to get around yeah flexible yeah Yeah. (laughs) and uh, so it truly was uh it was eye-opening to me to see what they had done so uh so you said mark noah had been the pilot of of many of these kinds of yeah i think he had a b-24 i'm not positive what his own craft was but he eventually sold that and all the money went into helping recover mias okay i imagine that probably finding that first marine had to be quite a life-changing experience for him i i think so yeah. So how did you get interested then in helping and what, what do you do exactly? Well, I, I'm an archaeologist. I'm now, uh, some would say, uh, <clears throat> one foot in the grave. I'm 73. I was, I've been an archaeologist one way or another for the last 50 years or so. And I, I think 75 is the new middle age. So. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Uh, but I, I, uh, I was trained a great deal in graduate school with human uh, remains, uh, osteology, and they call it forensic anthropology now. But I, so I did a lot of work with that, and uh, and then in my archaeological career, excavated a lot of sites um, around the United States, and uh, and taught college for thirty five years. And uh, but I always wanted to get involved with this. Once I heard about an organization called JPAC, which was a Department of Defense Recovery agency years ago they've now become dpaa uh, defense pow mia accounting agency i'm learning my acronyms by the way oh, very, very good. Um, but i i had tried at a friend who was in jpac and i tried to volunteer in there and wasn't successful in getting in so i just kind of had always been nursing this idea of of using my archaeological and my and my human uh, osteology background to help recover these um missing uh, military and it wasn't until uh, I found out about uh, Clay Bonnieman the grandson of uh, Lieutenant Bonnieman who was killed in Tarawa uh, who and Clay lived near us in Niwot that I was able to hear about history flight and I said well maybe they will let me come work with them so I've been volunteering with them now for about the last four years okay so are you traveling the world then? Well, it, yeah, <laughs> I had very, done very little of it before then. Uh, a number of uh, trips down to the equator and the Tarawa, and uh, that's in the Kiribati Republic. 
and uh, and now uh, made um, three trips over to Europe and Germany and France and uh, recovering uh, plane crashes over there. Okay. And is it primarily World War II? Yes. That, that you're looking for? All World for? War II. Okay. Okay. Now, I realize that probably, and if I ask a question and you can't give me that information, I certainly understand that because I'm, I'm sure there's some things that you probably are sworn to secrecy on. But let's talk a little bit about Tarawa uh, because I've interviewed Clay Bonneman. I've read the book about Sandy Bonneman. Uh, it's Bones of My Grandfather. And amazing it's, book. It's, yeah. It is an amazing, an amazing book. In fact, I, as I was finishing it, um, I was crying. Oh. It, it's just truly, it's truly powerful. Oh, and yeah. it's, it's the story of, of Clay Bonneman finding the bones of his, his grandfather, who was just a young man. He, I think he was 32 years old. He was a little older than the typical Tarawa right. casualty who was around 18 to 20. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, he, had, he married, had three kids, Three I think, little girls. And, and uh, went off later on. He was a mining uh, executive and gave all that up after, after Pearl Harbor and enlisted as an, as an enlisted man. And was uh, got an on field uh, on battlefield commission and be a lieutenant uh, after Guadalcanal, and then lost his life a few months later in Tarawa. Well, and as you mentioned, uh, I mean, just think about it: eleven hundred casualties in seventy two hours, and they're they're needing to move on, and so they did very quickly, um, you know, bury the bodies. And I found it fascinating in the book as they were getting closer and closer to where they thought that Sandy Bonneman uh, was, re- you know, laid to rest. I mean, it was almost like I, I was getting tense about the whole thing <laughs> yeah. as, as they were determining that. And there were records, not great records, and then things have moved. But uh, it was just so powerful when they actually found his bones. That trench that's uh, cemetery 27 that trench that uh, all these bodies were laid in sort of like cordwood they brought in the cbs came in with bulldozers and bulldozed these oh three four foot deep long trenches and laid 30 to 40 people in there next to each other um and uh, this one had eluded people for a long time and it, it was a great detective story to actually find this trench and it went right underneath a major building. There aren't a lot of big buildings on Tarawa, but this was one of them. And I, we don't learn engineering in archaeology in school, but uh, they had to use um, big um, winches, not winches, um, and the term I can't think of the top of my the jacks, big hydraulic jacks to jack the building up so they could go underneath it and recover the bodies that had been covered up by the building many years later. It was an amazing engineering feat. And so I'm, I'm in awe of what they were done. I would have been uh, no good at all figuring yeah, out I'll, how I'll in the world one. to get under there. Okay. Okay. Now, were you there when they found uh, Sandy Bonneman? No, no. I didn't get down. That was in, uh, I think it was March or April, and I didn't get down there till June. So I missed, I missed that one. Were they still working in that trench when you got no, there? No, that one was closed by then. They were in there a couple of months. Okay. And was Tarawa your first? Yeah. Okay. So, Steve Castles, tell me about that. You know, I mean, this is this has got to be quite an adventure for you. Well, I my dad was in the Navy, and, and I spent the Korean War out in Pearl Harbor. And so I grew up on an island, and I thought, well, this is paradise. It's pretty nice out in Honolulu. And, and 
got down to, to what I thought was the South Pacific. Technically, it's 50 miles north of the equator, so it's not really South Pacific Central, I guess. But I went down there with this vision of this beautiful tropical paradise, and it is a slum. It is disease-ridden, uh, uh, 50% infant mortality. You don't see any old people walking around. And it, people are just in horrible situations down there in terms of sanitation and, and uh, health. And, uh, in fact, after my fourth trip down there, I caught dengue fever, and my wife has now said, no more trips to Tarawa for uh-huh. me. So it, it it is not a pleasant place to be. The humidity is off the charts, as is the temperature. So you're soaking wet all day long. You're working in very difficult conditions. But but every, what's amazing to me about, and I've worked on a lot of archaeological crews, and I've run a lot of crews over the years, this group of dedicated archaeologists in history flight are like none other I've ever seen, and they're the, in that their passion is to recover these men. And it's not just an academic exercise. They are out there working very hard every day to uh, to find these men so they can be returned. I've got to think about the cost. I mean, how is Mark funding this? Because, I mean, a jacket building up, that's no small feat. Oh, yeah. I think it took three months. They had to order these jacks. Uh, they were shipped out of San Diego. I think it took three months to get them down there. Uh, yeah, yeah the, the, it's very expensive. Okay. Uh, I don't know how he did it in the early days. A lot of donations, certainly. And they still rely a great deal on donations. They have recently begun to get some partial uh, coverage uh, of expenses from the Department of Defense, but they still don't cover all the costs. Uh, This is is just what I've heard, so it could be wrong, but I'd heard that that the government's uh, efforts – run around a million dollars a body to be recovered mm-hmm. i i could be off on that but that's what i heard whereas the history flight is somewhere around a hundred thousand a body still a lot of money mm-hmm. um, but uh, they were able to do it with, they don't have all of the bureaucratic red tape to go through that uh, the department <laughs> of defense requires <laughs> yeah like a 10 to 1 kind of red tape uh, yeah yeah <laughs> it seems to me like we would sure like to figure out a way to to find as many of these uh, remains as possible. Yeah. Steve Castle, tell me about, uh, we've got about mm, probably three and a half minutes before we go to break. Tell me about the first time that you actually found remains of one of our U.S. servicemen. Well, actually, the first uh, remains that we found were Japanese. Oh, okay. Uh, it was a uh, bunker that had been hit with a couple of big shells from a offshore uh, battleship and the Japanese were caught in the bunker and were killed and we went in there and found those and uh, so and we knew right away this was not Americans but within about three or four days we we were alerted a lot often these are it's just luck when we find them uh, they're not always in in a cemetery that's well marked but there were New Zealand sanitation workers down there digging a sewer and they hit a body and uh, we so we went over and started working on that one and there first thing I saw was a hand a forearm and a gold bracelet on the wrist and then looking at the bones could tell this was a kid the the bones had not healed they had fused uh, the growth plates hadn't fused 
and we're estimating he was 15 or 16 years old when he was killed. So I mean, what a shame. And that was pretty common. I think a lot of those early uh, military enlistments, they lied about their age. They did. And, and, uh, and this was one of them. Or they got somebody else to sign. Yeah. You know, I, I'd like to just stop for just a minute and and just let that sink in, that these were 15, 16, 17-year-old kids that basically stood up against tyranny and evil and, yeah. and saved and saved the world. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty amazing. So, okay, so you – that takes my breath away um, because that means that there's somebody <clears throat> out there that uh, loved that kid. Absolutely. And um, and he didn't come home, and they never got the remains. That has to be pretty heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah. Pretty heartbreaking. I have now met some of the families um, of the people we've recovered, and you can see 70-some years later how much they're still uh, attached to their lost relative and, and how grateful they are to be able to close the circle and, and uh, bring their loved ones home. It doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. Those losses never go away. And so uh, you basically, you have found your, the remains of your first serviceman who you realize it's just a kid. Uh, I think what we'll do, Steve Castles, is we'll go to break. When we come back, I'd like to hear what happens next after that. You are listening to the World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, americhicks.com. Have the privilege of talking with Steve Castles, which you're a volunteer, right? With yes. uh, with History Flight, uh, Mark Noah's History Flight, which is finding the remains of World War II veterans throughout the world. So we will be right back. Hey, before we go to break, Hooters is the spot to be this summer. Enjoy Hooters beach-worthy seafood items like amazing fish tacos, delicious snow crab legs, and mouth-watering buffalo shrimp. And Hooters has plenty of ice-cold beer options to help cool you down this summer. And I love this. They have nine items for 9 bucks, 11 to 3 p.m., Monday through Friday. You can choose from nine delicious menu items, such as fish and shrimp tacos, salads, cheeseburger, Philly cheesesteak, and, of course, their boneless wings. So that's great. Dine in for that and all the other great food. You can stop by and get uh, your Hooters wings to go, or you can have them delivered right to your front door. More information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's Hooters. Colorado.com. Let them know that you know the AmeriChicks. So this is Kim Munson with the World War II Project, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. All of these shows are archived there. And I'm thrilled to have in studio with me Steve Castles, a mutual friend of, of Grady Birdsong. So it's great to have you here. You are volunteering with History Flight, which Mark Noah, History Flight... They're finding the remains of American soldiers from World War II, both in the Pacific and also in the uh, European theater. So before we went to break, Steve Castles, uh, we talked about the first body that you found. So you, you realize you said there's a hand, there's an arm, there's a bracelet. What happens after that? Well, we started expanding. It turned out to be Cemetery 10, which was a... Uh, uh, one of the one of the cemeteries that had been uh, visited after the war by graves registration. It's a branch that that recovers uh, the dead, and they went in there and they found 500 of the 1100. And this was one that they had gone through, but they didn't do a very good job, and a lot of body parts are left over. This was this turned out to not be the entire body; it was the arm. 
And we'd get other ones where there are lots of boots with feet in them and, and uh, other fragments here and there. And at the time, I had this feeling, because we dug quite a few of those already salvaged trenches, mm-hmm. that that it, we, it was kind of hopeless in terms of really uh, contributing much because it wasn't we aren't getting the whole body. And in many cases, the bodies had been uh, taken back to the families or at least uh, – taken off the island but i was that, uh, just that oh. makes me sad that they didn't do a yeah. more thorough job well i saw a photograph of the recovery and i don't know if this is indicative of all of the recoveries but there were two navy guys sitting on the, on these posts at the end of the cemetery drinking coca-colas and there were two local tarawa guys with shovels digging uh so they they, they, they weren't it, very careful they, uh, no and, and i i don't know i i couldn't put myself in that place in 1946 or 47 so i want to judge but yeah it, they did it wasn't it wasn't a very thorough job uh but it's a difficult situation you're in a high water table you're in sand it keeps collapsing it's hard to find these people okay. uh, they weren't archaeologists none of them were so i can't i can't blame them for their lack of Got skill okay. in recovering all the bodies i think that i think that's a fair um description probably they didn't really want to be there <laughs> probably not <laughs> it's such a miserable climate but this is the way i wanted to say at the end when i came away from there th- feeling that, that we weren't doing much good by finding these partial bodies but i was at at the dpaa headquarters in honolulu about a year ago and they took us into this room that is entirely devoted to tarawa and there are i don't know 30 40 bodies laid out on uh, uh, on tables where they're working on them to try to identify them and and the lady who was in charge of it said to us, your partial remains that you send back have been extremely valuable because they have now unearthed all of the unknowns from Tarawa that were buried in a military cemetery in on Oahu, uh, the punch bowl. Mm-hmm. And, and they had been treated with chemical apparently and the DNA is no longer extractable from those bones. At the punch bowl. Yeah. So and and a lot of these are fragmentary uh, remains. So they brought them in, and then we bring in these fragmentary remains. And those people work miracles in refitting our partials to their partials, and we can get DNA out of ours. And they have now been able to identify a lot of the unknowns from the punch bowl because of what we have found, what was left over out there. So in a way, it was probably a good thing they didn't completely vacuum those trenches right okay so you're in these trenches then you're finding just fragments what happens after that well it's it's very much like a a crime scene in a way when we have to maintain uh, uh, a lot of vigilance and vigilance in um, uh, chain of custody and evidence bags that are sealed and all of that uh, so that when it's turned over to the uh, military to the DPAA that we can tell them exactly where they came from and, and and all of the evidence that comes along with it. In many cases, dog tags or pendants or bracelets or Marine Corps emblems, all kinds of stuff we're getting in material evidence that goes along with the physical evidence. And then that, that goes uh, into our labs there on Tarawa, and then uh, the government sends down about every three months, they send down a big plane – and they'll 
go through what we have and take them all back to Honolulu. So that's uh, multiple times a year they come and recover these remains. Okay. How many different bodies have you recovered? Oh, I don't know. I've never thought about that. Um, Probably in terms of plane crashes, I guess we've gotten uh, five, I think, out Mm -hmm. of planes. And down in Tarawa, I don't know, a dozen maybe. I'm not sure. Let's, you said your wife won't let you go back to Tarawa now because you got <laughs> had, got dengue fever. Yeah. Is is that something that our soldiers got as well down there? I, they, they had all kinds of diseases, malaria, dengue, I'm sure. Uh, I'm, uh, chicken gunya is another one. Uh, mm, some, they're tropical diseases you don't want to get. Don't want to. <laughs> um, and uh, the dengue, I got a mild version, fortunately. I heard these horror stories of your eyeballs with needles going out of them and, and – uh, internal bleeding and all sorts of things. Right. And uh, I didn't have that. I just had a really high headache or a high fever and a, and a bad headache. And I laid in bed for about a week. And by the time they had diagnosed me and the blood sample came back from California, I was already up and around it. <laughs> they yeah. said, but you had it. Okay. <laughs> so you were able to just get through that. I now, got through it. Yeah. I do remember now that you mention it, I've heard some of the stories about it and it was not something that you wanted to get. And malaria also, uh, you said our soldiers on Tarawa and Guadalcanal as well. Right? Water, yeah. yeah. You don't get malaria on, on Tarawa. There's no malaria there. Oh, okay. Strangely enough, because it's mosquitoes there, um, you don't get a lot of pools because it's all sand. The water goes straight down. You don't get pooling, but they get into uh, things like old rubber tires and they're, they're breeding wherever they can find a little puddle of water. Okay. But, uh, but on Guadalcanal, it was malaria. But malaria, at least you can take uh, a medicine for it you can, you can was it the atabron or, or something that turned their skin yellow that I was one know. of the things that they took i think i i've i've taken malaria medicine before uh it does but you can't do, take anything for dengue no, you just try to keep the insect repellent on but you sweat so much down there that you can't, it's hard to do okay so well what else would you like to t- tell us about the pacific theater and then we'll go so did you find any plane crashes in the Pacific Theater? Uh, I didn't. Uh, there are a few in the lagoon. Uh, this, When the, the Marines captured that island, it had been a stronghold for the Japanese, and they were launching flights out of there against U.S. Uh, in the South Pacific. And, and um, so we took it over and began flying out of there. And there were two B-24s that crashed within... I think it was on the same day, actually, uh, in the lagoons, and there were about 14 who were were killed. Several survived, but some didn't. And uh, those uh, bodies were different than the than the uh, battle casualties mm-hmm. in that they were buried in coffins, and uh, we ran across them. Uh, they were they weren't mapped. We didn't know where they were, but they hit them just quite by accident in the cemetery 33 and. And I think they got them all. And I think almost all of them have now been identified and returned to their families. Wow. So, that's, so that, that's amazing. So yeah. anything else about the South Pacific and then we'll move over to the European theater? Well, it, it was um, it was a amazing experience. I, I, I took a number of my students down there, several of whom are now full-time employees with, uh, with History Flight. 
and and it, I I don't regret going at all. It was wonderful, but but it all also has the you know the trying conditions along with it. But, um, the people down there that that the thing that amazed me the most about Tarawa are the natives. Wonderful people, happy. They're living in absolute squalor, and uh, and yet they all smile, happy, friendly people, very helpful. We have a, a big crew, I don't know, 14 or or more uh, local Tarawa men who work with us every day out there, uh, doing a lot of the heavy shovel work. At my age, I, I don't do a whole lot of heavy lifting anymore, and they are just, they work like... Busy bees all day long. Uh, amazing, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's probably what I miss the most is mm-hmm. being around those young men. Mm-hmm. How many more bo- bodies do you think are on Tarawa? That need I to think they're there? they're still looking in a, for a couple hundred. Oh. I think History Flight has found two hundred. That is amazing. Something like that. That is amazing. So. Yeah. Okay, well let's let's move over to Europe. So uh, you're no longer going down <laughs> to the Pacific, right? Uh, so Europe, you said you're looking for plane crashes primarily. Yes. Okay. So tell tell me about that. Well, I, you know, we if you look at if you read any of these stories about the uh, all of the bombing missions that were coming out of England and then later on out of France, uh, the casualties were just astronomical. You might have a a, a formation of B-17s. Uh, and they might lose two-thirds of them in a single trip, uh, getting shot down by flak. And early on it was bad because the uh, fighter escorts didn't have enough fuel to accompany them all the way to their targets and back. So they would accompany them as far as they could go, and then they had to turn around and go back to England to refuel, and then they'd come back to try to catch them and help get them home. And the Germans all knew this, and they waited till the until the fighters turned around and then they started shooting them down and they just dropped them like flies. It was awful. If you saw the movie Memphis Bell, you know, you kind of get a feeling for what that must have been like uh, under that those kinds of trying conditions. Pretty awful. Well, we lost 88,000 airmen in World War II. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, it, it's absolutely astounding. And 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 improvements were made as they went through the war, but like you mentioned, early on, they did not have the fighter escorts. And, of course, the closer they got to the target, the more flack there was. Yep. And I just got to think, Steve, what what happened to, to people when they, you know, they go out on a mission and they come back and the guy that was in the bunk next to you Gone. isn't there? Yeah. I mean, that's got to really be tough. You know, I think that's the case in all wars. Uh, I've never actually been shot at in battle, so I, I'm only talking to those like Grady who mm-hmm. who has. But I think in many ways you you have to sort of partition yourself off from a lot of that so you can keep going. But you know, now that we're recognizing all of the um, PTSD that is that back in the old days you know uh, Patton would slap a guy cuz he'd get out yeah. of bed you're there's nothing wrong with you um they call it shell shock or right. battle fatigue or something but uh, I have a friend who was in Vietnam marine and uh, he's been operating on his own ever since and he's about my age and 
and, and, and had some alcohol problems and his wife divorced him. And, but he never recognized any real health problems. And he went in to the VA a couple of years ago and they, they went through his records of where he had served in Vietnam. And they said, well, you were at this battle and at this battle and that battle. You have PTSD uh, without even looking at symptoms just because they know the impact that that has on on these people. So it's it it takes a toll. There's so many people out there probably still undiagnosed. Grady does this wonderful thing with guys with PTSD with his uh, his uh, barometric. Yeah. Like the chamber. I can't remember right. what they call it. I think that's right. But, but it's uh, they, they, the same sort of thing they use for uh, uh, treating deep sea divers, the bends and that, to help help them recover from the PTSD symptoms. Well, Pretty yeah, I, I can't, uh, <coughs> I can't, I don't want to imagine, you know, what that actually was. But uh, and these were young guys, again, oh, yeah. and they'd get they'd get on and that plane and do the next mission, you know, and uh, and again, these were just kids. They were sta- standing against. You know, a premier fighting force initially with the Germans, and uh, and they didn't give up, which is it's pretty pretty amazing. So, no. so you primarily have been doing recovery of of uh, airplanes then in yes. Europe. So how does that go? I mean, it's kind <clears throat> of, I I mean, you people haven't known that there was a big airplane out there. I mean, I I don't quite understand how all these years later that you know they hadn't already been found. Well, a lot of local people do know. And, and the government has gone out of its way to try to identify with oral histories of the local people where there were crashes. And, and, and the Department of Defense has been going over there for a long time, talking and interviewing local historians and, and other things. And there's a big contingent now of, uh, lack of a better term, maybe, World War II hobbyists over there. They, they, uh, they go out and dig up uh, what they can find, German or American or English um, aircraft. but So they know where they are, uh, at least a lot of them, at least general idea where they happen to be. Um, so so they go in and they, they have and have records. I've looked at some of these records that go back to the 60s or 50s maybe where they will either say this is a recoverable plane or this is not or this, this plane crashed but everybody got out so we don't have to worry about that one. Uh, what they're really looking for is a report of a crashed plane where they didn't see any parachutes, and those are the ones they tend to head towards if they can. And then they they do their local research and uh, and then multiple trips over, uh, typically DPAA or JPAC were going over, talking to local people, going out surveying, looking for things to de- to uh, determine whether it's going to be a feasible project to try to recover them. So it's not a, a fly-by-night operation. It takes years. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we, we get uh, the go-ahead on a particular one. They give us a huge folder with all the information that has been collected, including letters from the mothers and the wives to the federal government saying, where's my son, where's my husband, you know, go all the way back. Um, and, and those are heartbreaking oh my letters God. to read. Um, so, so then we go in and, uh, uh, using what has already been determined from DPAA, we'll bring in, uh, ground penetrating radar or magnetometers or any metal detectors, whatever might work depending on the local geology. Some things don't work in some places and they isolate what they think are 
possible targets. And uh, then when we get the approval, we go in and and uh, start digging. Okay. Okay. So Steve Castles, uh, volunteer with History Flight. Let's go to break. When we come back, uh, I want to hear about your first uh, excavation, <laughs> I guess, if you will, in Europe. So this is Kim Munson with the World War II Project. <laughs> Hey, welcome back to the World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, americhicks.com. All these shows are archived there. And just really thrilled to be talking with Steve Castles. He's a volunteer with History Flight, uh, Mark Noah's History Flight, uh, where you have been finding the remains of World War II soldiers, both in the Pacific Theater and also the European Theater. So let's talk about the European Theater. You're now you know, looking for planes in Europe. Tell me about the first one that you found. I had I know very little about aircraft, and uh, uh, our first project. I was not in charge. I was just a worker, a, an excavator, um, and we were. I got a call in. Uh, Mark called me in August, and he said, "Can you put a team together real quick?" He said, "Short notice, but maybe in the next week or two we can get over to Germany and dig this plane." So I did. I found a bunch of students that were ready to go. We didn't leave for there until the middle of November. They'd already had their first snow. <laughs> this is northern northwest Germany, and uh, it was uh, it was brutal. Oh my god! Um, and uh, a little so, battle of the bulge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see what those guys. We had a few advantages they didn't have. We had uh, space heaters in our tent and lots of chocolate. <laughs> and you weren't surrounded by the Germans. <laughs> uh, well, we were surrounded by Germans, but we well, were true. friendly Germans. <laughs> we were friendly Germans, that's <laughs> In fact, right. They kept inundating us with uh, with chocolate <laughs> and other little treats. Uh, so we got in there in the middle of November. They identified, with ground-penetrating radar, a crater in the, in the, in the yard of a horse... Uh, facility uh we're going to have and in fact the people running the facility said to the dpa hey, if you don't come this year you can't come at all because we're turning this into a show ring and and it's it by next spring it's done so, so we had to go so you had to go in november we had to do it then or not at all and uh, and so they identified the plot we staked it all out first day we went through with metal detectors just to see how wide the the debris would be from a crash like that. And of course, a lot of things have happened in there since then in terms of agriculture and development and, and, uh, and scavenging. Uh, these are not pristine uh, planes that are laying in the ground the way they crashed. The Luftwaffe, the, uh, the, the military, uh, part of the Nazi military, and this was, this was have been 1944, I think. Um, they, um, they were scavenging as much metal off of U.S. aircraft as they could to melt down and use in their war effort. And so as soon as a plane crashes, Luftwaffe would show up with heavy equipment and go through the whole thing and pull out the engines and the bombs and everything they could find. And so they churned this great deal, and everything was mixed up. And uh, and it was deep. I, don't, I mean, we probably went down 10 feet, maybe a little more than that. So it had been covered up then? It had been covered up and it had been plowed and uh, um, so forth. Um, and, and a lot of the metal had been removed. The little local boy had come in. Uh, we met him as an old man. And he said, yeah, he says, I came down here and I got a couple of big pieces of aluminum and I sold them and bought my first bicycle. Wow. 
so the locals knew where they were. Um, and they then in recent years, there's a group of, of aircraft historians over there, Germans, who were looking for this particular plane. This was an A-26, which is sort of a light bomber. It's not a big B-17. Um, and it had a crew of three. And they went down. There were two planes that went down within a few minutes of each other. Uh, on this raid, coming up out of France to bomb uh, factories in northwest Germany. And uh, so uh, it had crashed. It had been scavenged by the Luftwaffe, and then all the other people came in and, and took things, and then it became covered up. You couldn't tell it was there. Did they just leave the bodies th- there? Well, we didn't know. You get a lot of conflicting testimony. We were told that later on, that two of the crew were buried in a in a little potato cellar or something nearby. We went and checked it. No, no evidence for that. But um, the young man who had witnessed it with his father, I think he was six or seven at the time, lived on a farm nearby, was in a card game with with a bunch of other of his friends, and one of them happened to be one of these aircraft historians, and he was telling the story, and it perked this guy up because they were looking for this plane. And so he took him out and showed him where it was. And that's when they reported it to the federal government, U.S. government, and they began the search for that. And I don't know how long that interim was before we were brought in, but it, it had to have been at least a year probably. Um, so we went in and started started digging, and it was my first experience in, in digging a plane quite different from anything I'd ever done in my life. And how so? Uh, we're moving dirt really fast. We know that everything is disturbed. In, in our typical archaeology, we go very slowly, meticulously, brushes and mm-hmm. dental picks and all this so that we don't move anything. But in, in uh, aircraft recovery, we already know the story. We know the dates. We know the people all we want to do is get the remains, and we can't take six, eight months to dig a major project like this. So most of what we find is on the screens. We'll dig it up, put it in buckets, run it through the screens. And if we run across something, we see it, we'll stop. But but typically, we don't. So we were moving fast. And in addition to the fact that it was so miserably cold, rained on us for a while, there was some snow, and it got to the point where the ground was freezing at night, and you can't screen frozen dirt, and mm-hmm. it ruins the screens. And it, it, so we'd get up about four o'clock in the morning, under a, put a small tent out over the unit we were going to dig that day, and put a space heater in there at four o'clock. And by the time we got out there about eight o'clock, the ground had thawed out enough that now we could screen the mud. Wow. And <laughs> so it was not a, it was not a good uh, working situation in many ways. And we were bundled up very much. We had a nice big tent with space heaters, and we had lunches in there. And there were nice parts of it. We got became very good friends. There were a crew of maybe about 15 of us working, mm-hmm. both out of Cranfield Institute in Britain and then uh, from the United States. It was mostly my, uh, my former students who had come over. Uh, so we, we kept working on it. Eventually, I remember the first time we found we found the first human bones, that was really exciting to know. Okay, now that we know that they are in here, mm-hmm. not taken somewhere else mm-hmm. to be buried. Got the pilot's wings. That uh, hair stood up on the back of my neck when we found his wings. Uh, Lieutenant Hadfield was his name from Salt mm-hmm. Lake City. Oh. And um, 
We how, got his. How, how old was he? Yeah, twenty six, maybe twenty four, twenty six, yeah. something like that. The pilots tended to be a little older than the crew. The right. other crew men were eighteen, nineteen. Yeah. Um, one of the pictures that we had of this crew was Hadfield when he was back in Salt Lake with his bride and his two children, and he had this two year old daughter in his arms, and um, so I, that had stayed with me a long time to see that. And then last year we went out to Salt Lake City to the funeral, and his daughter Marianne is still alive and has four grands, four grandsons of Hadfield were at the funeral with her, and uh, they couldn't have been more gracious. It was it was an amazing experience to be part of that funeral. Um, and, and when they they introduced, there were about six of us who were on the crew that went to the funeral and. One of the reporters there said, I've never seen this at a funeral before. They introduced us. They had to stand up during the funeral ceremony. And we got a standing ovation, which was just uh, very touching. It was amazing. So, uh, it, it just drives us to do more yeah. of that sort of thing. I think. That's a powerful story, Steve Castles. I mean, to really think about it and uh, to, to have that picture and then to find those wings. I bet that uh, that yeah. did stop you in your track. So you so there were three bodies then in this. Yeah, this? they were you know, also all fragmented, but uh, mm-hmm. they were they were there. We got dog tags from two of them, Hadfield's dog tags, and uh, one of the other crew member, Gunner. The third one we couldn't find dog tag on him, and um, and it turns out when we read the records a little bit later on where the inventory, all, all the things in their foot lockers before they send it home to the families, mm-hmm. he had left his dog tags in his foot locker. So we weren't going to find the third guy's dog tags. Mm-hmm. But we got his high school class ring with his name, his initials engraved in it. So we had ID on all three of them. Wow. So that was, uh, it was gratifying to be able to. How long do, do these excavations take? Uh, typically, um, four to six weeks. And if they run much longer than that, you wind up having some turnover. Uh, this project I've just finished, I was there five weeks and I had to leave and they took another two to finally wrap it up. But, so, it, but it's usually around a month. Is it important to have continuity? of the? Yeah, it, it's ideal if you can. Okay. Yeah, okay. But not everybody can. Hang in there for six, eight weeks. I mean, that's a long time. I know. It's a long time to be I, One of my students, I'm so proud of her. My former student is now, she's now a professional archaeologist and went off to graduate school. And, and she went to the, to the funeral with us in Salt Lake. And, and she said that basically changed her life. Now, she doesn't want to do professional archaeology in the U.S. anymore. She wants to do this. And she's over there all summer. And they were having to apply her, uh, get her to apply for uh, an extension on her visa because you go. You stay in mm-hmm. Germany more than ninety days. You're no longer a visitor, and uh, I don't know how that. Hopefully, that's worked out. But I cannot imagine somebody working ninety days straight. We don't get a whole lot of time off, uh, and we work early. We look a lot more than a forty hour week. A whole lot more than that. And she's hanging into the very end because it's so meaningful to her. Uh, so, I'm I'm uh, very proud of her. Well. It's it's really noble noble work. We've got well, we probably have about six minutes left in in the interview, Steve Castle. So, what's another story that you'd like to share with us? Hmm. <laughs> I think um, 
we did a uh, we did a project in Normandy, and you you were talking about going to Normandy earlier. Um, this was a, a a fellow by the name of Burley Curtis out of Massachusetts, and he has now been returned to his family. They had the funeral for him. Uh, he was flying a P forty seven fighter plane and, mm-hmm. and uh, knocked himself out of the sky after he dropped a bomb, and his own bomb caught him, and he went down. And I'd never been now to how France. How did that happen? Well, I don't know. Uh, it, it apparently is not that uncommon if you've misjudged a little bit as you dive down to drop the bomb and then you're trying to pull out. Maybe you uh-huh. don't pull out quick enough. I'm not sure, but but he wow. he crashed, and, uh, and his but his plane hadn't been identified until just a couple years ago. They didn't know exactly where it was. They knew it was near this little town called Brios, France, which is about an hour inland from Normandy beaches. It's in the Normandy um, area. And and when we went, I had I had heard all these stories about French people are not real friendly towards Americans and all that. But and it may be the case in the, in Paris or other rural or urban areas. But boy, the Normandy people just are so grateful to. Uh, they still are. Yeah, uh, and we met a lot of the local historians in there, and they have erected monuments in the Normandy area for every known plane crash with the history of the pilot, even if they haven't found the body or the plane, they know nearby where it is. And they go out there every year on the anniversary of that crash and uh, honor it. They have a ceremony at each of these. And I don't know how many of these monuments there are. They took us to quite a few of them to see. And right in the town of Brios is this monument to Burley Curtis. <laughs> and and he, his plane was about two miles away from that monument. And we, when we finished the dig, uh, we'd been stopping in, in the little town of Brio's to get uh, espresso in the morning and a few things before we head out. And there was this little coffee shop where we'd stop, and they had this um, signboard up above the the door of the plane of the shop. And of course, it's all in French, and I don't know what they're saying anytime, but. The day the day we closed the project, they the media came out to do a, a, a story. We made the front page of the French newspaper that next day. And driving through town, we had a guy that was could speak French with us. Went by the signboard, and there on the signboard, it said "American Aviator Found." And uh, so the local people keeping on top of that and and, uh, and expressing their their pleasure at that it's, it was just uh, it was great to meet those people and they were so kind uh, the farmer where we did the excavation brought out wine champagne soda pop every day at the pro- on the site at the end of the day and and then had us over to his farmhouse for a big banquet one day and they were he was so grateful that we were there and doing this and you know, we found that as well when we were in Normandy in 2016 with these four D-Day vets, that in fact the French wanted these vets to come to their home for dinner. So what happened was a vet would go to a different home. We got to tag along. And so it was a wonderful experience. And and uh, to see them still come up, you know, those little 90-year-old guys, and they're saying, thank you, because yeah. of you I live. And uh, we did go to also some school uh school classes, and Steve, it's so amazing that they are still teaching that history to the children, 
And uh, I actually had done a presentation on something different out at a middle school. Great kids. However, I mentioned Normandy and World War II, and nobody (laughs) really knew what I was talking about. That's one of the reasons why we do this show is because we think it's so important that we capture these stories so that people, you know, can understand that. We've got a couple of minutes left. You mentioned uh, in between we were talking about Normandy and Point du Hoc, and uh, it is certainly powerful. Omaha Beach, I feel it's sacred sand there. But describe to our listeners what you felt when you saw Point du Hoc. Point du Hoc is uh, on the top of a cliff. It's about 100 feet off the water, if not more. And the, the landing craft that came in there had to shoot grappling hooks up onto the top of that cliff to hang on well enough to climb the ropes. And right above them were these heavily fortified German bunkers full of 50 caliber machine guns that were firing on them while they were crawling up that, that cliff. And they didn't regrade that area at all. And you walk around between the bunkers, and there are these huge craters, probably 16-inch shells from battleships that were fired in there to soften up the area. Uh, everywhere you went, you could see that the, it was like the battle was yesterday. Uh, so it was um, – I had never heard of Point du Hoc. I, everybody heard of – I thought in my generation, I heard of Omaha Beach, but – the hawk was a brand new one to me, and that was a highlight. Well, so I, real. I hadn't been familiar with it either. And uh, and like you mentioned, you think about it, you're climbing straight up and you're being shot at. And I can't remember which anniversary it was, but President Reagan talked about the boys of Point du Hawk. Oh. And I would highly recommend people to Google, Google that YouTube because it is absolutely powerful. Wow. So... Steve Castles, uh, if people want more information about History Flight, what's the best way for them to, to get information? Well, I think the most up-to-date, well, actually two sources. Uh, HistoryFlight.com is uh, is their website. And then there is also a Facebook, uh, History Flight Facebook page. Uh, and they keep updating all of the finds and who's who's out there and, and some of the projects that are going. And so either one of those or both would be good sources to learn about History Flight. And are you going again? Yeah, but I just got back and I'm still jet lagged and I can't even think about another trip right now. But I know that when they when Mark calls, when you're calls, going, I'll huh? Probably be back there again, yeah. Uh, well, this has been just really really fascinating. Steve Castles, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, and this is Kim Munson with the World War II project. We're signing off. Be sure to tune in same time, same place next week. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the Americhick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.